Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 75 movies, one cage. Today's movie is Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans from 2009. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And with us today we have a special guest, Chris Mattiello. Hello Chris, how are you? Hey, I'm great. How's it going? Good. So now this was one of the movies, I was asking a bunch of people when we were first signing up people to be guests on Cage Club, and I'm pretty sure this was one of the first five off the board, and you jumped at this really quickly. Aside from the fact that it's just a crazy, incredible movie, what what drew you to this movie? What did you want to talk about it for? Yeah, I remember when you asked me to do this, I was hoping so hard this wasn't taken, because <laughs> uh, this is seriously, and I mean this with no irony, Probably in my top 20 favorite movies of all time. I love really dark, funny, absurd satires, um, especially ones that are really misunderstood. Like Spring Breakers, for example, uh, is one of my favorite movies. Yeah, like it's it's a great movie. I just love misunderstood movies. Like anytime someone says that Tyler Durden is like an awesome guy, I laugh really hard at them. Um, (laughs) And I feel like this is one of those movies that's really misunderstood because I feel like it gets lumped in on YouTube with, like, uh, The Wicker Man, which is an episode I just listened to. And that's kind of like a so-bad-it's-good movie. And, I mean, I'm, I love those. I, I'm looking at a Tommy Wiseau bobblehead right now. So <laughs> don't get me wrong, but I think this is a genuinely great movie that's going to get lumped in with, like, the wacky cage stuff. And that's kind of a shame. So I wanted to come here and you know, kind of go to the mats for it. I think it kind of makes sense in a weird way, and this isn't a good thing, that it, it's sort of misunderstood because the backstory behind this movie is kind of as crazy as the movie is. Apparently, Werner Herzog, when he made this movie, had never seen the original Bad Lieutenant, never thought that this was going to be a sequel. The studio just wanted them to put Bad Lieutenant on so they could have a little bit more marketing. <laughs> the screenplay was set in New York. They moved it down to New Orleans for basically for budget reasons and also because Werner Herzog wanted it to become a character. But I just like that like most of the title wasn't part of the original script. Like, it's not Bad Lieutenant, it wasn't set in New Orleans. It's like this whole weird, complicated backstory that leads to this beautifully, wonderfully weird, twisted movie. Yeah, and in another time and place, this movie is on the blockbuster direct-to-DVD shelves, and it stars, like, Rob Van Dam and 50 Cent. <laughs> and if you, if you read into the, the background of it, the writer of the film... Uh, his credits are like Law and Order, CSI, NCIS. Mm-hmm. So I I can see the the bits and pieces of that of this film that are a very generic modern noir film. And I'm glad this is kind of a deconstruction of all of that because it's it's so fun. Now, Mike, had you seen this already? Had you've seen this movie before, right? Yeah, I saw it around the time it was first released on home video. I was familiar with the original film. Um, I like the director, Abel Ferreira. I know he's you know pretty intense filmmaker. You know his films are pretty shocking and violent. And yeah, coming to this, I wasn't into Cage the way I am now. You know, so I approached it pretty much as a Werner Herzog film. I knew him mostly as a documentarian. I, it was, this movie really opened me up to his body of work, uh, his foreign films in his early years, his, you know, his newer American films, his documentaries, and so forth. And the first time around, I mean, I loved it. In other hands, it would feel like a pretty common police procedural without too much really going on because of the talent involved, like these people are able to take it further in certain directions than less capable people may have been able to. And I think you really get something original out of what would just appear to be an otherwise, you know, common story. 
in a sense, in one way, I guess the way you describe the plot, it does kind of play out like a two-hour Law & Order or two-hour CSI or whatever, that basically Cage is just trying to figure out who killed this family of five people. It's something that you it's probably been done in Law & Order, I don't know, a hundred times? But the detours that this movie makes, whether it's because of the writing or the directing and like the influences that Werner Herzog put on the movie, it just gets real crazy real fast. It's real and also surreal at the same time. Like there, it just there's so there's so much to talk about in this movie, and it's just great. Yeah, I mean, I wrote down two ways to describe it for people who have never seen it, uh, or maybe have only seen the original Bad Lieutenant and didn't see this because they thought it was just like I said, like a throwaway cash in sequel. It's closer, I think it's kind of the Gremlins 2 to Bad Lieutenant's Gremlins, where it just goes off of the rails. <laughs> and I also described it as a, a noir through the lens of Hunter S. Thompson. Because yeah, it that's... gets very gonzo. It gets very gonzo, very Dadaist, very wacky, but still stays in this realm of very, very dark, very ugly. Yeah, Herzog does a good job of this sort of hyper-realism where <laughs> when the occasion calls for it, stuff gets scary very quickly and very seriously. But then other times when it calls for it, it's completely absurdist and laughable. And everything fits into his world really well. I just have to credit him as a director. And I feel like he brings the humor to this a lot more. The original just felt a lot more like an expose, like, oh my god, like, you know, there are these crazy cops out there in New York City. You know, better watch out. They the real criminals. That's sort of the vibe I got from the original. This one doesn't feel like that at all. It feels more of like a character study about one particular cop going through his day-to-day suffering and dealing with this um, injury, right? Like this chronic back pain that he has. So, I don't know. There's just something lighter about this in a strange sort of way. Like, I'm definitely chuckling here when I wasn't in the original. What I kind of forgot about from watching the first time is that that chronic back pain you were talking about, that he deals with the whole movie, that he gets it, he develops it in the first scene, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I guess we never see that explicitly, but in the opening scene, he and Val Kilmer, who is looking great in this movie, like, I, the only movie I think I'd other, other movie I'd seen around this time that he was in was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, where he was very heavy as Gay Perry. Val Kilmer, like, looks like he's a cop, like he pulls it off in this movie. They're walking around the precinct, and it's, like, right after Katrina, I think. Like, basically, immediately after, place still flooded. They're walking around the precinct and just sort of, like, scavenging for whatever. And they find a prisoner still in the in the cell. And they, they have this little back and forth about, you know, whether or not, like, how quickly he's going to drown, basically. And then Cage, even though he's wearing $55 underwear, decides to take the plunge in and save the guy. All right, 20 bucks and the Polaroid. Says nothing happens before five. 20 bucks, what the fuck is that? Let's make it worth our while at least. A dime. I'm not betting you no thousand dollars. 500. Get the fuck out of here, man! The water keeps rising, man! Get me the fuck out of here! All right, 200 and the Polaroids. Please, motherfuckers, please! Please watch shit, turd. Got a broke leg, sir. Please, get me out of here. Wait a minute. You want me to get wet on account of you? Yeah, I think the world owes you living, huh? I'm drowned, sir. Hey, man, I got on Swiss cotton underpants. Yeah, that's right. Cost me $55 a pair. You think I want to get all this brown water and shit all over them? That don't come out. And we never see him actually get hurt, but I think we're led to assume that his jump from the second floor into this water really kind of messed up his back, right? Yeah, that or, like, dragging the guy out or pulling him around or something like that. 
it's kind of just he jumps in and then a smash cut to him in the doctor's office and the doctor saying you've got this back pain you're going to be on these medicines indefinitely and he's like how long like forever we don't see the inciting incident we just kind of get a, a gist of it and it's an interesting scene too because it really sets up val kilmer as like there's the scene even before that where they're going through the wrecked prison they find another police officer's locker and go through it and find dirty pictures of his wife and they're like talking about how they're going to use that to leverage him to do favors uh, that's mostly Val Kilmer, so it, it starts kind of setting up as, like, Val Kilmer as the bad cop, but then he just kind of disappears. And speaking of Val Kilmer, have you seen, uh, and how he looks, have you seen McGruber? No, okay. I have not. I know yes. I should. Well, that's it's terrific, and he's terrific. He's also Fat Man Forever in that movie. Like, Absolutely. <laughs> I really like this this opening. First of all, I, I noticed at the end of the movie, I thought back to this scene, and it sets up immediately his gambling addiction, right? He's like, they're betting immediately, and that becomes, yeah. like, a major thing for his character. And it sets up this kind of thing, like, they're not really nice guys, you know? Like, they're not really good. Like, they don't immediately go help this guy. It also goes to show that even though Cage acts like a bad person, deep down, he is a good guy. And he is going to jump in and save this guy after all the bullshitting. And, and what I really like that it does is, you know, it shows that there's a cost for being good, right? Like, he tries to save this man's life, and it ends up giving him pain for the rest of his. You know, it's like a constant reminder that one time you tried to do something good you know, you got fucked up because of it. And I just think that's interesting. He, he's going to carry that with him through most of this movie. Like, I get the feeling that this scene is kind of there and the, the banter with him and Kilmer to kind of set up that it wasn't the back injury and the addiction that made him a bad person. That was always there. And this just kind of brought it out and exacerbated it. I, I agree. I think he was always going to be some version of the bad lieutenant. I sort of wish we had the, we knew what this movie would look like if he hadn't gotten hurt there, like where his life would have gone. I sort of get the sense we don't really know for sure. I mean, he was probably addicted to some kind of drug thing before, right? Or do we? I mean, we don't really know. There's not enough movie before, but like we get the sense that he's at least some kind of like immoral cop. I don't know if he's like a like addicted to stuff cop, but how bad do you think he would have been? I know this is impossible to know, but like how bad would he have been if he didn't get hurt there? That's a tough question to answer. I don't think that he would have necessarily solved the case, but he is a good cop no matter what. Like, he's got cop instinct. He knows how to read a crime scene or how to investigate and things like that. It's not even that, like, his addiction and his pain get in the way of him doing his job. It almost gives him leeway to do his job a little better in this particular case, because he is like a drug addict and does coke and meth and crack, like he is able to go undercover in a strange way and integrate himself into the criminal element in certain ways that other police officers would never even imagine thinking of doing, you know? So in a strange way, I don't know that he would have solved this case had he not mm. injured himself. I agree, in a way. Like, jumping in also is the thing, because after the prognosis of the infinite back pain, it jumps to him becoming the titular bad lieutenant. He gets promoted because of this. Yeah, I think that gives him more free reign, probably, to do a lot of things um, than he would have at a, at a lower rank. Like, now he has all of this access to the evidence locker, which comes into play. Uh, it's where he gets his fix a lot of the times. It seems like he doesn't really need to be in the office nearly as much. So yeah, he gets this more free reign. Yeah, he's able to really become that bad lieutenant because of this. What I really like about this movie, and I think it kind of goes against, or it's it does something better than most of the Cage movies we've been watching lately, they set up so many things here just by showing him doing something instead of, like, 
telling us about it. It seems like we talk about it more and more lately about showing, not telling. I think that's just because a lot of the movies he's been making lately-ish haven't been as good as he was, you know, in the 90s and the 80s, whatever. Even, like, little things like when he gets to the crime scene, these five people have basically been killed execution-style, and the cop says, oh, you don't want to look, they're all just shot in the head, like, it's gruesome, like, you don't want to see it. And he still picks up the tarp? Like, you just know, like, that's exactly the kind of guy he is, that he's just sort of seen it all, he's been through it all, he's just in it. And I just love these little moments that they just, you know, through a line and, like, a small action, we get to know so much about his character. Yeah, and it's it's probably worth mentioning at this point that the murder that takes place, like, the, the thing that's driving him through the story, is barely a plot point throughout a lot of this movie. There's times when you completely forget that he is yeah. on a murder trail, especially because we're told pretty much from Jump Street that Big Fate is the one who did it. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of him finding out who this is and how to get him. It's really more of a jump-off point for all of the cage-esque, drug-addled hijinks that ensue. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely less about who done it and more about how does he function? <laughs> like, how does this guy actually, like, function through his life, I feel? It's like, that. yeah, they find out who did it really quickly, and then there's all this red tape involved. That's when he sort of has to take matters into his own hands, almost reminding me a little bit of, like, a dark daredevil. When the system doesn't work, he goes to hit the street and use his vigilante style on the, on everybody. And one thing that I really love right off the bat about Cage in this film is his body language. He looks like he's in pain. Movement is very restricted from having this back problem. And just immediately, he does this great thing right off the bat that he'll do over and over again is when he tries to sort of kneel down, he'll just sort of go down on one knee a little bit right and not like all the way that is just like a great little character tell that he sets up right at the beginning i mean no one ever says to him how's your back how's your back they're always just like i hope you're not taking more than prescribed medication as an audience we're constantly reminded just by the look on his face his like inability to get as angry as he wants to because he knows like maybe he'll start throwing his arms around and hurt his back even more or something i'm just always reminded of that yeah no one ever has to say it out loud Yeah, it's a very physical performance, and I think he uses his body in this movie in a way that we really haven't seen lately. Though we've seen him do this kind of thing, you know, the way that he just carries himself and holds himself and postures himself. His posture in this movie reminds me of Peter Lowe from Vampire's Kiss. Oh my god, I was thinking the same thing. Sort of like that, like, hunched over, just, like, uncomfortable in the world around him. Like, the way he talks and what he says says a lot about him. But I think he could not even speak the entire movie, and we'd still know what he's going through. Yeah, I, I completely agree. That's exactly... I'm, I don't have as much of a Nick Cage pedigree as you do, but I flash back to the end of Vampire's Kiss as well when I saw his kind of hunched performance. <laughs> and he also does great stuff with his body. He has different mannerisms for each drug that he's on. When he's on crack, he gets very manic and it's all facial. Uh, when he's on heroin, uh, his words all kind of slur together into like one long word. And he he scratches at his face a lot and is very droopy. It's excellent, like, the body language that he jumps between just scene to scene. It's it's great. I think he's great in this movie. And again, I know it's got the Nick Cage freakouts, but regardless of that as a meme, I think he's great in this movie, and it's one of his best. Yeah, I never really appreciated, I guess, until now, like you say, his different drug phases. Like, (laughs) most people are probably, you know, asked to act drunk or asked to act, you know, be high on coke or sis. But this guy has to go through all these different drugs in one movie, you know? So you have to come up with all these different ways of playing that. You can't play two different drugs the same way. So when he 
<laughs> accidentally snorts heroin, you know? Like, it's pretty obvious that he's on heroin and not on cocaine. I think what makes this movie work going, this sort of references, I think, what Chris said. It does have his freakouts, but, like, what, what I've learned, and I think what we've talked about, is that sort of the best Cage movies are the ones where he's allowed to be crazy, but also the world is crazy around him. Like, in Raising Arizona, everybody is basically cartoon characters. In Wild at Heart, everybody's sort of a David Lynch character. In this movie, everybody around him seemingly has some kind of problem. Like, you know, Ava Mendez, back from Ghost Rider, she's got a cocaine problem. She is a prostitute, so she's got all sorts of things going on. His dad is a recovering alcoholic or substance abuser. Every other cop at the, the precinct pretty much has either a gambling problem or is crooked or is dirty, or if they're not, we don't really get to meet them. And then everybody else he's dealing with is, are criminals. It works so well and that his freakouts are within the realm of normalcy. As crazy as he is, the rest of the world is right there with him. I feel like Herzog creates like a very frustrated society here you know he's definitely playing on like this post-katrina mentality you know and i can't help but think of what it must have been like to sort of be left behind in katrina like these people who can't move or can't replant themselves somewhere else you know like this cop for instance this is his beat you know and now his city has been destroyed by this storm and i just keep thinking of like the constant frustration that everyone must be going through but everyone's going through it so you can't really lash out at one another and then there's this weird understanding between each other of like we've all been through this madness but we're still carrying on about it and i think it all comes across like almost in like this very subdued mad max kind of way where everybody is like kind of crazy in their own right the the herzog thing to me in a lot of ways this is more of a herzog movie than a nick cage movie the themes are very herzogian you know the savage animal in the human like cage is just a walking id throughout this entire movie working totally on instinct and just taking what he wants and not really giving any second thought to it. Cage is just the perfect prism to filter that Herzogian kind of uh, intensity through. And I completely agree with you also on uh, New Orleans, and I was thinking a lot about that setting and how it's become kind of the go-to these days, kind of post-Katrina, for noir, True Detective, obviously, is the other. I know that's not exactly New Orleans, but I believe that is Louisiana. Um, Much in the same way that California... In like the 60s and 70s, Chinatown, a bunch of noirs, neo-noirs set there. Also true detective. <laughs> yeah, true. Sleazy New York in the 80s. It's just like places that are going through these transitionary periods where like they're just down. Like those become the noir settings. And that's Herzog's wild in this movie. And Cage stomps through it like an angry lion or maybe alligator would be more poignant or maybe even a hurricane himself right like he is like this perfect storm of nuts right and it's exactly what's needed to get this particular job done but yeah great great call on like the setting though like i also thought of killing me softly watching this and then i did think of chinatown too to a degree just in we have like this sort of unreliable detective (laughs) running around wreaking havoc and stuff so very interesting i just showed my girlfriend this movie because we're going to New Orleans in a month and uh, it's just kind of a side note it's got me way more excited for that trip and also uh, we found out where Nick Cage's pyramid is and plan on making a stop there you I'm very should, excited for that. You should maybe do the New Orleans trilogy and watch Zondali and Sunny as well. Oh, I've seen yeah, Zondali. Oh, Zondali will get you in the mood for New Orleans if you know what I mean. <laughs> Another Cage connection that we get in this movie, and it's not as good, I don't think, but it's close to Matchstick Men, is we have another pharmacy freakout. 
that Cajun pharmacies do not mix well, especially when he's in need of his fix. Excuse me, could you tell me how much longer that's going to be? You just Hello, miss! I'm a lieutenant in the police department. I'm in the middle of a homicide investigation. Can I get my prescription, please? Do you see I'm on the phone? Hey, you can't come back here. You got me waiting 30 minutes so you can make a fuck personal phone call. Can't be back. Security, security to pharmacy, security to pharmacy, please. This is it. This is it. Come on, guy. Police Come on, emergency. Guy. This is it. You know, cop. What's that look like? Then why are you acting all crazy for? This is uh, $23 with my copay, right? Here's 40 Get everybody a drink. Get the fuck out of my way. This is one of those shots where, I mean, there's so many shots in this movie where Werner Herzog just sets it up beautifully, and here he's just standing there with just like the big sign that says prescriptions above him. Like, just like, we know why he's there. We know what he's there for. And just like sort of let him do his thing. Like a kid in a candy shop. Lots and lots of long shots in this film. And I love it. Herzog just lets things go natural. And you can really feel that. It's one of those things to paraphrase or steal from Red Letter Media. It's a thing that you may not get it, but your brain does. It really lets you soak in everything that's going on. And uh, yeah, the pharmacy scene is great, and it, it's a punchline to what set up the scene before that, where you see him talking to his uh, the chief or the commissioner or whatever, and he's just got the gun, his gun stuffed in his pants, like in the front. Oh, I love um, it. No holster. Oh, I, it reminded me of Plan 9 from Outer Space, with the cop who just has the gun in his hand and is waving it around casually. The actor did that just to see if Ed Wood would pick up on it, and he never did. Um, <laughs> Just that complete cocksure, don't give a shit attitude. And then in the pharmacy scene, when the guy says you're not a cop, he flashes his gun, but this is kind of my thesis in, in regards to this movie. He flashes his dick, basically. The gun, gun <laughs> dick parallels. It's very, very clear in this movie. Perhaps the most penis as a weapon, blatant metaphor since like alien. <laughs> I love that, too, because it just shows how brazen he's become as a lieutenant. He will now sort of throw his weight around, whatever. You could tell he doesn't comb his hair anymore, but people still say hi to him and give him respect and stuff like that. And totally, he's waving his big dick around, right? Like, I hope, <laughs> I hope you see it. I hope you see it, because I got it. Like, that's just kind of how I take it. And I love the pharmacy scene, because he's in the right. Like, he has, he's been waiting there 45 minutes, and she's been on the phone, and his prescription's been ready. It's just like another one of those instances where he just has to take it, you know, and it gets to a point where it, it's too much, and we finally get to see him rightfully explode. And again, I'm a lieutenant where's my prescription throwing his weight around sort of like using his clout on these like long takes that Herzog has been using like it took me a while to even tell that that was happening like you say like I had to catch up to my own brain watching this movie a couple times but what I think it does for me is it just helps sell the realism of this craziness a little more those little snippets that happen in real time just sort of make this feel more like actual reality as opposed to if it was cut really quickly and crazy to sort of accentuate Cage's mentality and it doesn't try and get inside his head a lot of time. It does it once or twice with the lizards and things but for the most part, you know, it's a very simple style. I think you needed that to offset the insanity of what's actually happening. What I like about the pharmacy scene is that the security guard, I think, is just like, why is he doing this if he's a cop? Like, why is he acting this way? And it's the whole movie. Like, why is he? Because he can, basically and because he's in the right. His prescription's been ready. He should have gotten it for 
45 minutes ago, he can sort of do whatever he wants, and it's not he's not doing it because he's a cop. He's doing it because the world's not doing it for him. He's got to sort of... And this is my thesis. I, I love Chris's gun as dick, you know, gun as penis, whatever, power, man thing. My thesis, sort of, about the movie is that it's sort of the American dream, and you sort of have to take what you want. Like, no, the world's not going to give it to you. And so here, like, he's physically going and getting his prescription because the pharmacist is like she just doesn't care about him yeah i mean i definitely pick up on that now he even screams you know here it's 28 dollars with my copay and so he's invoking medicare and all that kind of stuff into it too and and definitely it's like the new american dream right it, it used to be work hard and you'll get what's coming to you but now it's take what you can grab i think there's some privilege stuff going on there too which is kind of tied into the power you know he's yelling at a black security guard a black pharmacist talking, waving his, his gun dick around as a cop, talking about, when, here's 28 copay on my insurance. You know, he's a cop, so it's like a state insurance. Buy everyone a drink. He's just there. He knows what he needs. He's taking charge uh, because he can, and he can do that to these people. It's funny for such a short scene how much subtext is actually there if you want to read into it, and not even joking. I mean, you know, I think we covered it all, but like, you could write several papers about this film, but you could pretty much write like a five-page paper about that one scene, which yeah. is just insane how dense this can get. Let's not neglect to mention, it's a really funny scene, too. Yeah. <laughs> the part that always gets me is when I notice that he, uh, and I don't know if this was intentional or just uh, an aspect of it being a long take and being the best one, but he says, I've been waiting here 45 minutes while you're taking a fuck personal call. A fuck personal <laughs> call, not fucking. And that part makes me laugh out loud every time. I love how he's chewing the Vicodin, you know? <laughs> he's not even, he's just like, er, er, er. I think this sort of sets off a string of events in the movie where just his life is just, I guess it's the addiction ruling his life, that the next few scenes, at least the next few notable scenes... They're all driven by his need to either get high or get drugs or sort of cover up his drug path. Like, we have him taking a nap at work, apparently, and Michael Shannon, the evidence locker cop, comes up, and he's talking to him about, you know, basically he's, he's been lifting drugs out of the evidence locker. And then we get the scene on the street where he follows those two kids as they leave the club, and he shakes them down. And that's a scene we need to talk about. But, like, all these scenes that are going on, it's like, okay, how can he get his next fix how can he get these drugs? How is he going to get high next? What are we high on tonight? Nothing. Pass drugs in that club? No. The two of you match your description. Empty your pockets, dump out the handbag. Why? You're hard of hearing? I said you match your description. Somebody seemed passing drugs. <laughs> I wasn't passing drugs. What does that even mean? Empty your pockets, dump out the handbag. I'm not going to tell you again. This is bullshit. Just, just do what he says, okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you got in there? Nothing. I'm not going to get stuck, am I? No. I get stuck, I'm going to be very fucking angry. You're not going to get stuck. Where's your badge if you're a cop? Here's what I'm looking for. Here's where it says I'm a cop. Sir, it's, it's obviously just, just for personal use. I mean, I'm, I'm not a dealer. That's for the DA to decide. You're going to dump that bag into why I got to do it. I have a feeling that this scene might might turn this into the longest Cage Club episode ever. Um, <laughs> this scene 
is Ballsy as Hell by both Cage and Herzog. And the thing I want to ask you guys, and I was having a discussion with someone else I know who writes about film, and we were talking about Bad Lieutenant, and this scene came up. A question that we, we asked each other is, is this a rape scene? Um, this episode is just filled with tough questions. I think... <laughs> I mm, It's... The fact that you can't answer that speaks to (laughs) says something about this film and how it tackles these issues while also this the scene is really funny at times and that feels fucked up to say especially if someone has not seen this movie they're probably very confused and probably hate me and our and our (laughs) trend a hashtag about how awful i am maybe you guys can back me up on this it's just a you have to laugh with how awkward and uncomfortable and weird the scene is the thing that struck me about this scene is how many sort of reversals of power are kind of going on here. Initially, he stops this couple. He's looking for drugs. Like, it's obvious because Michael Shannon just told him, like, your source is getting cut. So I, I just took it as the next scene, he's going to try and score. So he shakes down these kids coming out of a club, throws his weight around, you know, I'm a cop. What's in your pockets? All this. He finds a little bit on one guy, tells the woman to, like, you know, where's the pipe in this? And then sort of at that moment the boyfriend is sort of panicking the girl seems like she's kind of been through something like this before the position the power sort of sways to her right like she puts the crack in the pipe and lights it for him and like blows it into cage's mouth and he becomes very submissive at that point the scene sort of kind of just dissolves when it ends but it's weird like yeah at at first i was like okay i think he's gonna rape her this is gonna be terrible but then by the end of it it was just very bizarre he's saying all those incredibly silly dirty talk like does your daddy know you smoke crack and like all that kind of stuff and like (laughs) did your parents molest you it's just so uncomfortable and it's all that and i don't i don't think that it's wrong to find it funny but i think you also have to find it disturbing on the same level oh yeah it's it's uncomfortable laughter don't get me wrong and yeah i can i'm completely with you on the power play stuff here because there's never a point where he says like okay start having sex with me like at gunpoint she just kind of does that. I, I forget who blows the yeah. crack into whose mouth, but she, uh, she blows it into his mouth. Right. She she uses her own power to, as you said, take control back, get them out of the trouble that they're in. It reminds me a lot of uh, this. Can be a weird comparison. Uh, the scene in Super Troopers where the guy pulls over the German couple. The woman just has sex with the cop on top of his car <laughs> to get out of the ticket. There's the power thing there. There's the power disparity, so it could come off as rape, but the woman is in complete control. It's, it's her agency, and, and meanwhile, the, the guy is stuck there watching, uh, except the scene in Bad Lieutenant is way funnier. And then, of course, you know, my gun is a dick metaphor. As the guy starts to move away, he, he blows his load, basically, and makes sure, make sure the guy is watching as he does it with his girlfriend or the prostitute that he picked up. We're never really sure. But yeah, another, another example of Cage emasculating someone else so that he can feel the power. I feel like it's kind of a rape of the guy more than the girl. Like, they both kind of conspire to rape him. Because rape is all about power, and, like, Cage is exerting power over both of them. As he and the girl are kind of battling or, like, locking horns in this struggle of, like, power and who has the upper hand over who. The one really sort of being dominated is his boyfriend, who's just, like, relegated to the background forced to watch and then like you said as he starts to walk away he's like no you come back you have to watch like you're not leaving you're not getting out of this 
Yeah, it's like the world's worst cuckold scene, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, this is like definitely a thing where, you know, people like their wives to have sex with other men in front of them and things like that gets them off and stuff. And I feel like it's almost also just a play on that as well. And it's just like, what kind of sexual taboo can we throw into this scene next? You know, can we just create a scene that tries to talk about all of it at once? And in a strange way, they do. I was also thinking like, even though the girl sort of starts to take charge, it can only have been from surviving a situation like this in the first place. Even though she does take charge, it it's not like great for her either you know what i'm saying like that's the other thing like she's only doing this to stop something even worse from happening i agree in the end he they emasculate the boyfriend there's a, a scene a, a line that i laugh at where the guy is just off camera and you just hear him go this is fucked up uh, yeah like no kidding of course it is and, <laughs> like it's like a greek chorus is, is telling you how to feel like no we got it cage also comes off looking kind of pathetic in the scene sure. because he blows his load extremely quickly both you know metaphorically and literally and i think it parallels the scene later on where the state trooper pulls rank on him and Cage is emasculated and then can't get it up for Feruza Balk. I think that this is kind of Cage at his lowest and I think that, you know, isn't this sort of, is this the last, it's not the last scene in the movie, but it's one of the last scenes, right? Like after he gets supposedly clean, we're jumping way ahead, he pulls the same thing. Like this is kind of like when he has no other options, like it's not fulfilling i don't think it's just it's all he has left and so it it makes sense that he isn't necessarily he he can't get off or you know it's not as gratifying as any of these other things are it's just like this is all he can do like when he's almost completely powerless like who does he have power over just like these two probably you know 19 20 year old kids who don't know any better yeah and even then he doesn't end the situation in complete control which is kind of interesting and and this is sort of the first time we will see him not get the upper hand right like we're kind of used to him coming into the situation and and owning it this will be the first of a few times where he will get sort of himself in this trouble situation where you know he thinks that he's in control and then he's not can i ask you guys a question as um i have not seen ghost rider Um, okay so i wanted to ask you how you felt about the chemistry in this film between ava mendez and nick cage and also if if it was there in ghost rider as well i felt like it wasn't fantastic in this movie i kind of want to slide into the parallel universe where Fuse Bulk and Ava Mendez switch roles. Ava Mendez was just kind of, and I know it's noir, so like all women are kind of prostitutes or damsels in distress in noir. Right. So she didn't have much to do, but I'm wondering, since you guys have seen this pairing before, how you felt sure. about it. So in Ghost Rider, the Ava Mendez character, and Mike, see, you can jump in to agree or disagree at any point. The Ava Mendez character in that movie isn't particularly well-defined and she's kind of a mess and all over, you know, all over the place. But the relationship, like, there feels like there's a history between her character and Johnny Blaze, Cage's character. Even though she's kind of a mess there, the way that, I don't know if it's the way that it's written or the way that it's acted, it seems like there's a real history between the two. And, like, there's not necessarily, like, a chemistry, but you can tell that there's, like, a bond. Here in this movie, I agree that there's more of, like, a sexual tension. And I think that's kind of intentional. Between him and Feruza Balk than between him and Ava Mendez, because I feel like his relationship with Ava Mendez, even though he calls her his girlfriend, I don't really get that sense. It feels like he's more kind of her pimp or protector and almost like a big brother. Like, it's it's a weird relationship, and I don't know that there's really supposed to be sexual tension. Like, we know that in the past, he and Feruza Balk were together at some point. I just don't get the sense. Like, I know that there maybe is supposed to be, and I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I wasn't entirely clear on their relationship in this film 
he mentions like uh, I can't afford to be here right now, and she's like, "Well, I can afford it, right?" So like I got the feeling she was sort of hanging on to him, and he would be around, like you say, Joey, to sort of be like this protector when he can. Like they score for each other, and they sort of look out for each other. She, I, I don't know, maybe she can give him a tip every once in a while or something for their relationship in this film. I did get a vibe from them though. Like I did get a sense of closeness or attachment a bond if you will more this more so than in ghost rider I, I agree in ghost rider they felt like there was a history there but there just wasn't enough material to really make anything out of it i'll put it this way like for that instant sort of connection you needed in a film in a blockbuster film like ghost rider i feel like they pull it off better than most people could have like you get the sense that at least as actors they got along off screen and and that comes through on screen but here it's just like a much more complicated relationship and you don't even know very much about it but i don't know i think Eva mendez is much better in this film you know she's definitely oh, definitely yeah. doing much more with this material than in ghost rider but i i like their connection in this film yeah i feel like her character here is much more well-defined even if their relationship is less well-defined like in ghost rider we don't really know who she is as a person but we know that she used to date cage when they were little kids and they haven't been around each other for a while so it's kind of like a a weird sort of reversal i don't know which movie sort of portrays her as a better overall package i would say probably this one and not better in terms of like morality but better in terms of like a fully well-rounded fleshed out person i feel like it's definitely here even though the relationship between her and cage isn't anywhere close i don't think to where it was or i don't know it's just it's just so different from what was in ghost rider like what's strange about ghost rider is we only know her as a grown like we don't know her so we only know her through what johnny knows her and she's just coming back into his life so that character of hers doesn't really arc at all she's more there for johnny to grow in this movie her character does have an arc she begins and ends this movie in two completely different places so i gotta go with with this version a little more so i hope that kind of answered answered your question chris about the sort of the the history here yeah no definitely i I was just curious how their chemistry compared in the two movies because i I think uh eva mendez is the weak part of this movie everything she does with nick cage's parents i think that's some of the worst stuff in this movie and that's not in any way eva mendez's fault um i don't think i've ever seen uh, a real like old noir or modern noir neo-noir any kind of noir where like there was a really great female character, which is, you know, one of the negatives of the of the genre. But I was just curious if they worked better elsewhere. I guess, Mike, this is their first... Is this the first repeat love interest in a non-franchise? Like, Diane Kruger was in two movies. He hasn't been romantically involved with the same woman in two different movies before, has he? No, I do believe this is a Cage Club first. Yeah, but in, ter- in terms of the, the noir element, like it is sort of like historically or in terms of the genre sort of supposed to be a poorly defined or at least not like a role model for girls. It just, like, there's supposed to be a flawed sort of one-dimensional character. Well, yeah, I think the idea is everyone's flawed, right? So right. for the woman to show that, you know, she'll be a, a prostitute or an, or an addict or a mother gave up her child or so, just something that people of the 40s would think, you know, is insane or frantic and just very easy to latch onto. And then you do the same for the men. I mean, the men in this film are portrayed terribly. I don't think, you know, maybe just his dad is probably the one guy. But even his dad has like a troubled history. It's not like his dad escaped it. It's just that he is sort of at this point in his life, like maybe he's the future of all these men, but none of these men are sort of bastions of pure goodness, except for maybe Daryl. 
the little the delivery boy. But he, maybe he's just he's not old enough no, to be corrupted no, yet. Even him. Well, I I don't know. That's what his grandma thinks. He's only fifteen, you know. But I disagree. I think like you make a choice. He he chose not to testify, right? Like he could have done a lot of good. So deep down, like you know, he did a bad thing, kind of by not, or at least like morally, like he did not do the right thing. And I think that just fits in with with noir in general. Yeah, that's a major theme, and and they're definitely rolling it out. And so this is a little bit of a stretch of the movie that after we have these drug-fueled interactions and him introducing himself as Ava Mendez's protector, we kind of get back a little bit into that Law & Order vibe and we find out about the three men. We find out about Big Fate and Midget and G. And they're trying to find him and bring him in. He goes to, like... It's not the, it's not the great time. The great time is the second time he arrives. But he goes to this... Is it a retirement home, or is it just that woman's house? Like, she lives in a mansion. I'm not sure, and I had that question as well, if that was... It's a okay. massive I think house. it's it said assisted living, so I'm pretty okay. sure it's, like, a little home for elderly people. But, yeah, the, the lady is, like, a millionaire that he goes to see, right? Well, he's going to see the lady who helps the millionaire lady. Right, yeah, basically the help, I mean, for, for lack of a better term, she he's going there to find this woman who happens to be a hairdresser for this old, rich, white woman who is the mother of a U.S. congressman. He's trying to find out where this 15-year-old grocery boy is, this delivery boy, because supposedly someone had a tip that they saw him at the scene. He might have seen something. I like that they're advancing the plot, but they're not spending too much time on it and even when they are they're making sure that the scenes that advance it are compelling and that there's these characters even if they're just like one note they're like well defined and they're just sort of interesting to watch yeah you get a hint in here as well from an interrogation scene that you know kilmer pops up again for one of maybe four scenes that he's actually in uh, where he's playing the bad cop he gets physical with i believe it's midget and cage has to step in and play the good cop Uh, they get some more information I think the worst parts of this movie are actually when he is getting involved. Well, no, I, I can't say that because of the parent stuff. But some of the worst scenes in this movie uh, are when he's getting involved in the case. And I think that's intentional because the case is not supposed to be the main aspect of the movie. It's a driving force. But really, like I said before, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's yeah. just the framework for this world to exist in. Yeah, it's kind of reminding me, Joey, of like Bangkok Dangerous, right? Like the hits weren't really the film, but it was just sort of to drive the drama that was going on between all of his assignments and stuff, and that kind of feels like what's happening here. Like, I think what saves this scene from being just your simple run-of-the-mill, go-somewhere-and-get information is that Nicolas Cage has to deal with two extremely elder women who are, like, indignant to him at times and stuff, and are from a completely different generation, and I just, like, look at that, like, just that image of the old black lady like with the old white woman in the wheelchair you could just like yeah. think it's been like that for their entire lives going back in new orleans you know and and i start to think of like the cultural generation gap going on here in this scene and then when the 15 year old boy enters the scene it's like just like another cog in this machine of different generations clashing along here and and it's those sort of details that breathe life into like what would otherwise be just like a run-of-the-mill scene and even the scene, like the next scene, like I think that, that Chris had mentioned that where they're doing sort of good cop, bad cop, reminded me a little bit of Ghost Rider, and once again reminded me of with Bob and David, the interrogation <laughs> sketch, that there's these, like, these little moments that there's like these bursts of life in an otherwise kind of boring, by the book, you would see on USA Network every morning at nine kind of scene. Even though it doesn't last very long, like there's like this like burst of passion that just cages, like he's into the scene even though he knows or 
or it's not or the scene's not supposed to be sort of a standout moment he's into it and it just it's not on screen long enough to sort of get bogged down by it it's like all right we're on to the next thing we're off to him talking to brad durf and making bets and continuing to lose money Again, in this scene, I'm also just reminded about his back, too. Like, he sits down extremely slow and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he's sort of walking around like Frankenstein at this point, too. Like, it just seems to be getting worse and worse. That's cool, too. And then before he goes to meet his bookie, though, they go and round up one of Big Fate's homeboys. This is a great shot. It's that moment when um, the SWAT team's outside and, and Cage is like, give me a minute. And he goes in through the neighbor's house around the back and then in the back. Door. And he kind of Gucci goos that little baby. Like, there's just so many little moments that are just amazing. Yeah, yeah and it, all in one take. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a long tracking shot. Uh, you really get a feel of that neighborhood just from that that tracking shot. He steals a little bit of weed, you know, just to remind you who he is. You really you get a great some great physical stuff from him because you really it really focuses on his back and how hunched he is. And uh, it, it reminds you of what he's going through in a lot of different ways. Ultimately, it like reminds you he's a good cop. Like it's crazy. Like <laughs> amid all of this stuff we see him dealing with, he's still able to show up at this raid and lead it and win the raid. And it's really funny. Like that's funny. You know, like that to me is sort of part of the dark humor. This guy is functioning. Yeah, and when when you say raid, I think it's worth noting for people who may have never seen the movie. Um, he just goes off on his own, politely enters the house, and pulls the guy out of a closet. The raid never happens. Cage never, other than when he blows his load during the maybe rape scene, he does not fire his gun at a person in this movie. I don't think I noticed that. That's great. It's always the threat of violence. That's also sort of weird that if we were talking about how it's him kind of at his lowest, right, in that scene, that's the only time he shoots his gun. I don't know if that goes hand in hand or if that's sort of the inverse of what you're be at. You know what I mean? He has that one moment when they actually take his gun from him later in the movie, and he comes back inside and tells his dad, like, what's a man without a gun? He's not a, like, I'm not a man anymore. <laughs> and he's it's been like, castrated. He's been castrated, and it's almost just like, yeah, it's it's just this safety blanket you know he doesn't even i get the feeling it's like not even for shooting it's just for having you know it's just like for confidence or something i don't know if you can really define it while you're watching the movie but looking at my notes thinking back in the movie we kind of had that little stretch of like three scenes in a row where cage is looking for drugs and now we sort of have a couple scenes in a row where the drugs kind of like you were saying earlier chris about hunter s thompson the drugs are beginning to take hold and he goes to his bookie, who is Brad Dourif, who, you know, back from Amos and Andrew, and he's just making crazy outlandish bets and losing, losing, losing. As a favor to Brad Dourif, goes to take care of Brad Dourif's daughter's speeding ticket, and we get, like, the alligator cop scene, or the alligator camera scene, and then we get the iguana camera scene, and it's just, like, him sort of losing his grip on reality a little bit hallucinating this iguana. Like, it's just, we sort of see him, the repercussions of his actions here in a few scenes back to back to back. I love that iguana scene. Just how everyone plays it completely straight <laughs> and Val Kimmer's just like, there's no fucking iguanas here. And that's the end of it, is drop it and go back to police work. How long has he been in there? About 20 minutes. Who else? His girlfriend, at least one infant. That's as far as we know. What are these fucking iguanas doing on my coffee table? They ain't no iguana. Yeah, there are. There ain't no iguana. What the fuck is that? Fucking iguana. But yeah, you're right. You do really see the drugs starting to take hold, and um, it's most obviously, like visually, you know, the language of film. We get to a different film grain. It's like shot digitally at that point. 
it's beautifully shot. And I mean, you know, from the way it's shot, it's just being so completely different, right? The same way that the camera's right up on the gator, right up on the iguana. Not that it's not real. I mean, the iguanas probably aren't real, but it's just we're in a different headspace right now. Whether we're in the embodying the character or embodying the movie or whatever, this is something we have not seen yet. Yeah, I think you're right. Like we're in the mind of Cage at this moment of his character, you know, and it's the first time too, so it makes an impact. I like and I'm also wondering if he's not tripping on acid right now, you know, like maybe. I I don't know. We didn't see him drop any tabs or anything. He doesn't later, but someone asks if he's tripping at one point. And I do love these like extreme close ups of the lizards too. Like uh, I don't know what other kind of camera they used for it, but it's just cool because it's like an instant change like you know like it's instantly recognizable and it's like okay this is only happening to him and it's really part of the personality of the film that you have this minute long iguana's eye view of (laughs) of the scene and you don't question it you're just like oh okay like by this point you're you've either turned the movie off or you're you're along for the ride and you're getting where this is going i just think that herzog can do that so seamlessly uh, when it's such a, a harsh juxtaposition is really impressive. But that, I mean, the, the animal stuff, that's just Herzog. Like I said, everything Herzog is, is about the, the... He's always had this fascination with animals, so it's not surprising. I think the first scene of the movie, the first thing you see beneath the title of the film is a water snake. The animals are yeah. are here throughout this movie. Do fish dream? Like, we kind of glossed over that because it doesn't really come up until the end. But that it's it's happening all throughout the, the movie, this amphibious nature of, of people. Like, I don't... I don't the well, animals well, I, is always the thing I'd never quite grasped. It's like a mystery I'm still unpacking. I, I, I was wondering if, if these iguanas weren't his spirit animal. That's where I was sort of going with it. Like, you say Herzog is very much like man versus nature, or like man becomes one with nature. I mean, you even see that in Rescue Dawn, you know? <laughs> like, there's moments in there where man has to conquer nature to survive and stuff. That's sort of where I thought it was going here. It's like he must become one with the iguana to survive the harsh jungle of life. Uh, you know, and, and that almost sounded a bit like a Herzog impression, you know? You must be one with the jungle if you want to survive. That's where I'm going with it, and I, it's working for me. We can't stop here. It's Iguana country. <laughs> exactly. You mentioned before that the first shots of the water snake, the last shots of sharks. Like, the movie is bookended by animals. We get all this animal imagery in the middle. There's another animal that doesn't necessarily fit the same kind of motif that I'm sure is a metaphor for something, and I'm not sure what. We. This is when we're introduced to his dad's dog, and the dad's dog sort of passes from the dad's ownership or looking after, then Cage has to look after the dog. He passes it off to Ava Mendez, who passes it off to the doorman. The dog has to represent something, right? But I'm not just I'm just not sure what it might be. Yeah, like like I said, the animal thing, it's there, it's pervasive. The club that he shakes the kids down uh, in front of is called the Alligator Club. I have not been able to unpack that, and it's always bothered me about this movie. So I, I kind of had one little idea about the dog popped into my head, and just the idea that it's man's best friend, and no one wants it. <laughs> like, yeah, like he keeps getting shuffled around. I mean, no one even knows his name. It's so weird because generally a dog is always pretty well accepted. I mean, a very quick way to establish a villain as a film is to sort of have him kick a dog, or, you know, do cruelty to an animal. And here it's like, no one wants this animal. <laughs> like, there's no one worthy to take care of a pet here. And there's even one scene where it has a gun to it its head it's like it cannot escape the reality of its of this world as well that's a great point I like that <laughs> yeah it's really good 
the ADA's last name is Good Husband? Oh, like, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jeremiah Good Husband? Like, what is up with that? Like, <laughs> in a movie that is kind of crazy, everybody's relatively named normal things. I mean, obviously, Exhibit and his crew have sort of weird kind of gangster hood whatever names, like we talked about Big Fate, Midget, G. But all the other names are normal. And then we just get Jeremiah Good Husband? Like, what? To me, that's like the name of a priest in a Tyler Perry movie. I, I just <laughs> don't... That came and blindsided me, too, when I saw it, and I got a good chuckle out of that. Yeah, and I, I just thought of Chalk It Up to sort of New Orleans being eclectic and old and stuff, and, like, maybe it was just, like, a really old family name that he kept and sounded distinguished, but it's definitely funny. I mean, like, it's just... It just is funny, you know? So whether it be taken from real life or not, the fact that it's in here, too, is just part of the absurdity. And, and the idea that it's the district attorney, someone who needs to be taken pretty seriously, who, you know, it, they have to listen to that guy, right? That's the guy who's like, keep an eye on your witness or else you ain't got a case. Okay, Mr. Good Husband. <laughs> I, I think one thing, and that sort of brings me into my next thing I love about this movie there's sort of like a casual nature to the level of intimidation that every character sort of exerts on every other character. That he is this guy, good husband, you would think, you know, he's sort of the best guy in the world, just sort of this, like, genuine, like, bastion of goodness. And he's like, hey, like, get your act together, otherwise we're going to lose everything. I mean, we don't see a lot of him. That might really, that's really only one or one of only one or two scenes that he's in the movie. But, like, throughout the movie, Cage is exerting, like, this level of, utter dominance and control over the world. I mean, we talked about the rape or not rape scene from earlier. You know, there's that one scene where he gets Midget from the house, and he's talking to his girlfriend or his wife, and he basically kind of threatens to shoot their baby in a way. That, like, you know, if you don't let me in now, that baby might get shot the next time you come in and you start shooting up the place. It's just the, the ultimate exertion of power, and I guess, again, going back to guns and penises and power and phallic symbols and stuff, that fits in right there, but it's just, he's so casually controlling of everything that you almost like don't pay attention to it because it's just so pervasive throughout it kind of comes across like as instinct to me too it's like that's part of being a good cop in a strange way just the way he's able to come in and manipulate a situation even if he is like a high on crack <laughs> you know like that doesn't stop him like i keep saying like that just doesn't stop him from being a good cop and i think that's kind of part of it i don't know i mean he also is a very dominating presence he's he's tall and he looks like lurch and like you know <laughs> like he's just very strange and awkward and stuff and it's it's hard not to notice him when he's in a room and pay attention to him so i don't know he, he kind kind of seems like a guy who people will like bend to in a weird way i don't know because like later when other people start to throw their weight around towards him he doesn't exactly give in you know like it's strange like there's all these weird standoffs between machismo going on at some point yeah i think that also ties into that whole animal herzogian thing where he's always got to be the alpha male yeah. And when he's not, it like it destroys him when he's not. There's so many scenes where he's just he's throwing his power around or he's throwing his dick gun around. Just based on what we know about his childhood through his parents, you can almost concoct this backstory where he's this insecure kid who became a cop for the power and has this very not police issue dirty Harry hand cannon. 
so that he can always have the biggest cock in the room. Parts of that show a lot in different scenes throughout this movie. The, the main theme that I saw throughout most of it. And what's kind of like a reversal of that is that when there's that guy that he, or not necessarily a reversal, but sort of a subversion on that maybe, is that when that guy is kind of roughing up Ava Mendez, the son of the developer, powerful guy throughout New Orleans, Cage, like the threat that he makes to him is like, you, you're going to wish you were born without a dick. You're going to wish you didn't have any power. Like, you know, I'm going to take away the one thing that means the most to you, like your one sort of sign of manliness and masculinity and power. Just, I'm, I'm going to strip that away from you. We don't hit women down south. You just made a big mistake, Terry. My father's Andy Winnick. You ever hear of him? Oh. One of the biggest developers in the Gulf Coast. <laughs> Congratulations. Tommy Leonardi's one of his best friends. Hey, listen to me, scumbag. Don't try to impress me with your father knows some guinea hood. Ooh. What you got to take away from this experience is if you ever see that girl again, you turn around and you walk in the oh. opposite direction. Oh, you got that? Yeah, man. I haven't heard about you so yeah. much as looking at that girl. Uh-huh. You're going to wish you were born mm-hmm. without a dick. Ooh. That was like the line you do not cross with the guy, too, right? Like, I love how that was his breaking point, too. It's like, who you did not just say that. Like, not my dick. I feel like the way everybody's trying to come across, like you say, like almost like the lion of the pack or like trying to come across as king of the mountain, it's like they're all like almost overcompensating for being deep down insecure, possibly. You know, that starts coming through around halfway through the movie. I'm like, Cage is butting heads with other people's egos that are just as big as his if not bigger at some points and it's like he's got to start overcompensating even more at some point just get bigger and it's like who can who can be bigger than the next like who can go biggest as stuff start i don't want to leave that uh that shakedown scene with uh eva mendez and the and the guy just yet there's a certain point when stuff starts coming down on him like when internal affairs interviews him and when he goes back to his parents house after he leaves eva mendez there he develops an accent that then leaves later on he develops like a Jimmy Stewart kind of nasally oh, voice. Yeah. I thought of um, Edward G. Robinson. See here. See? Like, almost like an old 40s gangster or something. Yeah. He's done this in other movies before. He did this in Vampire's Kiss, I guess, going back to that, where sometimes his characters, depending on who they're talking to or the vibe they want to give off, they'll just slide into an accent. It's a way to connect with different people, like sort of, I guess, how you act differently around different friends and other friends. Like, Cage has there's sort of a precedent here in Cage Club of him sort of sliding into an accent at different points in the life, or in the movie, or in the story, or whatever, to suit one weird purpose or another. I thought maybe that was symbolizing, like, him sliding back into that, like, down-home country boy as he opens up to Ava Mendez and spends more time with his family, mm-hmm. and his gun is taken away i didn't have a chance to notice when it because it does just it drops really hard at a certain point i think maybe around the time he starts hanging out with big fate which i guess that would make sense like he he goes back to being Mm -hmm. that big city carrying his giant cock around and i mean so yeah like he slips he slips kind of into that as soon as he gets that gun back as soon as he gets some power back as soon as he starts smoking his lucky crack pipe He's back to the cage that we, we know and love without the weird Jimmy Stewart accent. What I also think is pretty cool about like his changing accent, it shows off his ability to adapt as a person, this character, to these different situations. It's like this coping mechanism he picked up along the way through training or through being able to read different people. It's a weird thing. Like He endears himself to Big Fate, but also by being kind of the biggest turd in the room, he slips into like what he tries to do is gangsta slang when he's like, sup, sup, sup. Up all night, all night. Or when he makes some really lame crack about, 
uh, it's easy because I'm not easy e, and they just laugh at him like he's their their dorky white friend kind of. It's kind of adorable, but it it works. Everything, as we'll talk about, I'm sure everything works out for him in the end. It's kind of funny how how much of a, a nerd he is when he's hanging around with Big Fate and the guys. <laughs> I think he almost kind of has to be a nerd like that. Like if he, if he was his normal self, I don't know if they would accept him because he's sort of he's a little bit too aggressive as himself. But he kind of has to like make himself into sort of be like the honky or the weird awkward white guy, like the token white guy, just that so he sort of ha- has a place in their crew, maybe. Yeah, I think it, it, ha- it might also have something to do with him doing drugs in front of them and says, like, you know, I'll be your cop, right? He's like, I'll be your informant and this and that. So just, like, right when, when he's able to prove himself quickly, like, as a businessman of his word, then he starts, like, hanging out with them, too. <laughs> it's, like, the weirdest undercover cop thing I've ever seen in my life. It's, like, it's amazing that it's working. Like, he's definitely getting them to like him by playing the fool. Yeah, and you start to get a couple of scenes that seem to go on for a bit too long. And I think it starts with the the hotel shakedown where he saves Eva Mendez, and you know he threatens to cut the guy's dick off, or like says, "I wish you were, you'll wish you were never born with a dick," or whatever. And the guy takes about a minute and a half to leave the room. <laughs> yes, and he's going, yes. "All right, all right," or whatever he's saying. I go from loving that scene to hating it, and then laughing really hard again. <laughs> and there's a couple of scenes, uh, like the car scene with Big Fate. They all have that. I don't know what you'd call it. It's like um. It reminds me in a way, and I'm not a fan of this show, but it reminds me of first season Family Guy, where, like, that was kind of the first show that I could think of that did, like, the jokes that go too long and then wrap back around to being funny again. Or maybe at least the first mainstream show that did that. I think that's what basically Tim and Eric is. This movie does that a lot when he's in these uncomfortable situations, and it gets a laugh out of me every time. It's done so well in this movie. I definitely agree. I I think this just, like, part of farcical comedy in a way like i get a lot of that from the simpsons too there's a scene right after this that does sort of the same thing where we go back to the old ladies at the rest home and they close the door and cage is like behind the door (laughs) with an electric razor (laughs) shaving waiting for them once again (laughs) once again shout out to Lindsay gibb and her shaving thing like this is i think Lindsay gibbs like maybe favorite scene in the cage movie like this is her twitter banner profile i love everything about this just like the like the way that it's like menacing and also just completely innocuous at the same time like it's perfection right now i'm working on about an hour and a half sleep over the past three days and i'm still trying to remain courteous i'm beginning to think that that's getting in the way of my being effective what are you doing I want to know where Daryl is. My God. Nobody saw me come in. Nobody knows I'm here. This old woman's going to run out of air, and you're going to have a tough time convincing people that it wasn't you who did it to her. And even if, and even if you do convince them that you didn't kill her on purpose, you're still going to have a tough time selling them that you took care of her. What the fuck? God. Now listen to me. Where the fuck is he? I said, where the fuck is he? He's on an airplane. Yeah, he's so broken down here. He has a great, great line. And uh, I'm curious if this was in the original script because it's very noir or if it was something improvised. Uh, apparently, I watched an interview with, um, with Herzog where he said a lot of the stuff him and Cage just made up on the set. But he says, I'm running on about an hour of sleep. 
in 72 hours. Yeah. How he feels like how exhausted he is. He's trying to be courteous, but it's making him ineffective. Yeah. It's such uh, a good, menacing, funny, weird line. That's the other thing about this guy. Like, we talk a lot about, like, his body language and stuff and, like, this and that. But, like, his dialogue is, like, amazing at times. Like, I, I had to take a photo of this one scene. Early on, he goes to Eva Mendez's and there's, like, another guy there. And the guy, you know, is like, who the hell are you? And Bad Lieutenant just goes, I'm the last person in the world you want me to be. And it's just like, you don't fuck with a guy who, like, can pull that line off. Like, what's And the look in his eye means, means that he means it, too. So And he's, like, giving it to these old ladies, Sam Spade style. It's insane. Like, his interrogation of them goes too far, but it's also the perfect point that they've been building to, both in terms of, like, setting the movie up, but also, as he says, hour, hour and a half asleep in the last 72 hours, that he cuts off the woman's oxygen supply and then basically and then says maybe you should die like you're the reason that this country is going down the drain like maybe you should like it, the world would, the world would be better without you I'm not going to kill you but like I think you should probably die like you're just a horrible person you should drop dead you selfish cunt you ever think about your kids or your grandkids huh sucking up their inheritance through that fucked oxygen tube and Benny's fucked intensive care you fucks I hate you I hate you both I I should, I should fucking both. Just right now, I should fucking kill you fucking both! You're the fucking reason this country's going down the drain. And then you find out that uh, she's the mother of a senator, and that line, like, rings so much truer in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. He's just sort of throwing the line out there, but, like, there's actual subtext to to it, you know? Her backstory and everything fits it on another level, and it's just so crazy. Like, he's yelling, I hate you fucks, and there are two, like, 90-year-old ladies sitting there. He's right in a weird way because they shipped his witness off to England and, like, she birthed this senator who's might, you know, there's a chance that he's ruining the country and, like, they don't stand for what he believes in anymore. And it's just jarring for me because he's yelling at these old ladies and his point is kind of valid. Going to his physical actions and his physical acting throughout this movie, I just love the way he's casually slapping the nurse's hand away from the, uh... (laughs) the uh, breath tube. No, look at me. Look at me in the face. Understand what I'm saying. It's not even the best scene in the movie, but it's it's amazing. It's so perfectly acted. He nails it. It's cagey as hell, but also still fitting in. It doesn't have that harsh juxtaposition that, like, when it gets cagey in The Wicker Man, like, it feels like we've just gone off the rails. We've we've been off the rails. Like, where, yeah. where we're going, we don't need roads, and it's just it's so good. <laughs> that reminds me also of that one scene early in the movie where he's questioning the guy who's been brought in for having one joint. And he does that, like, back-of-the-hand tap, like, hand-to-hand, and it's sort of like that slapping the thing around. Like, it just, it's these little, like, he just is part of the community. Like, I don't know, it's just these little moments, these little gestures. I just, it just, it's perfect. Yeah, he knows, like, all the little cultural sort of sign language to navigate different neighborhoods and, and things like that. And I guess the best way to get through to old white people is cut off their oxygen, which <laughs> which works. But I just feel like, I just keep thinking about this scene is absolutely necessary, you know? Like, yeah, it goes to this extreme, but it's really necessary. Like, at this moment, his character, like, he's in debt with his bookie for, like, five grand or ten grand or something. And these mafia guys after him yet, I'm not sure, but he's, like... 
like definitely pissing off the wrong people already. He needs someone he can kind of kick around to feel big again. And I almost feel like that's another purpose of this scene is like he has to go slap around these old ladies just to feel tough. Yeah, because this is it, this kind of kicks off the stretch of the movie if we're going back to that every few scenes become something else that now like all the walls are closing in on it. Like the mafia guy, you know, the land developer, his goons are after him. The public integrity department is after him to get back at him for shaking down these old women. The bookies after him. Like this is kind of like the repercussions of all his actions that he's been flying by the seat of his pants, flying a little bit too loose. Life is starting to catch up to him. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Like this is where you know, as I mentioned before, like the the YouTube memes of Nick Cage. This and I guess the the pseudo rape scene. This is where it starts to cage starts to cage. Like cage gone cage. Now he's caging. And I was just listening to your to your Wicker Man episode, and I laughed really hard at a point because you mentioned that he wanted to in the Wicker Man. He wanted to play like a mustache twirling detective, yeah. and I feel like you know he didn't get to do it there. Now he has this movie where he can play this mustache-twirling crazy cop that's a, a remake of a, a, a much-beloved cult classic. I feel like, you know, he was delivered this really... Him and Herzog were delivered this bland, noir, generic script, and they just went, mm, here we go. <laughs> Let's do it rubbing their hands together. And, like, it's just... It's great. So you yeah, have to guess, see it. This is, this is sort of the movie that Wicker Man could have mm-hmm. been, that supposedly he and Neil LeBute in that movie were on the same page but everybody else on the different page. Like, here, everybody was was much more on the same page. And I think maybe because this is, like, just going for the hard R rating all along instead of Wicker Man kind of going for that PG-13 mm-hmm. mass appeal, like, they were allowed to go full out and crazy and balls to the wall and just sort of, like, literally throw the entire kitchen sink at the wall and just see what sticks, just throw everything up there and just see what la- what like what people grab onto. Well, I definitely felt like with The Wicker Man, his performance came across just a little forced. I think it's hard to intentionally do like a bad performance, you know, or like present like a cult performance right out of the gate. You sort of have to earn it with how bad it it is. And here, it's not that this is a bad performance, but like it's actually great. I think everyone's great in this film, but it has that cult status right out of the gate somehow that, you know, that craziness that I feel The Wicker Man wanted you know and it just seems much more genuine here and a lot less forced the elements fall much more into place here's something i was thinking about and i'm not sure this is maybe something that we could have gone back in cage club picked these kind of roles out and i think we kind of did it with Sonny in reverse about how james franco was like a young cage i really think that this old knee-breaking mafia goon you know the guy that the developer sends like this is like a cage role of cage is 10 or 15 years older you know like this guy who's just like I've been doing this way too long. I am tired. I'm just trying to get what I want to get. I don't want to be doing this, but I'm going to be doing this. And just for only being in two scenes, maybe, like he's so real and lived in. And just like you get him and you know what he's all about. Interestingly enough, that actor is the screenwriter. Really? Yes. Not only do they bring this guy in to play perhaps the most cliched character in the movie, (laughs) they murder him. There's literal death of the author in this movie. So I feel like this was like a Herzog in-joke where he was like, yep, we got your script. We don't give a shit. Dicks and iguanas, suck it. Like, <laughs> they but just like murder him in the best scene in the movie. He's got like the most amazing murder almost ever on film because you know they have to shoot him again. His soul is breakdancing. <laughs> like, it just won't die. Like, that is just like an amazing image. Shoot him again. What fool? His soul's still dancing. 
God damn it, I think that's one of the best scenes on film in the last 10 years. It's just like one of the greatest moments. I mean, I had totally forgotten that happened from the first screening. But what I love, the finding out that that's the author, it makes me feel like he's sort of in on all this, too. And he gives, like, a great performance. Like, that's the even funnier thing to me he is menacing like that's what i mean when i say like herzog is able to you know take a scene and play it light and make it funny and then the very next scene is sort of no this is like a seriously dark dangerous guy we're dealing with here and, and it comes across he, he even gets bad lieutenant sort of shaking in his boots and trying to wheel and deal i think that he would totally be okay with all the changes i mean i, I guess sort of to a point because when the movie comes out if you don't like do any research, you don't know that Werner Herzog added all these things, and I have a list, and I'm going to mention things in a second. You see that who the movie's written by, you're like, oh, this guy wrote this movie? Like, this guy's a genius, you know what I mean? So, like, it's okay that, like, they're sort of, like, messing with his script and sort of making him play this cliched character, maybe literally killing him off in the middle of the movie. Werner Herzog is sort of making him look like this brilliant screenwriter by adding all this crazy stuff to his movie. Yeah, I, I do get the feeling maybe the guy is, is in on the joke. And you're right, Mike. He has a great little monologue when he first sits down at Big Fate's house. I don't. He, he tells a little story. I don't remember verbatim. Or he's got a nice little menacing. Uh, I'm a mobster. This is my job. Kind of monologue, and it's it's really well done. Yeah, I do wonder. I really wish I could find out how much of the of the joke he was in on. He does the role decently. I think the scene where Cage comes into. Uh, Ava Mendez's apartment is one of the more cliched scenes of the movie. But uh, yeah, he's still fine in it. He leads to the best scene in the movie and one of the best, uh, I really honestly believe, one of the best lines and one of the best scenes in, in a crime film in the last 20 years. What I want to point out, which is sort of a weird, I don't know if irony is the right word, but that dancing soul scene, which is what you just talking about, the idea for the scenes at the beginning and the end, the aquarium, the iguanas, the alligator on the highway, Cage's monologue about the silver spoon, which we haven't gotten to yet, none of those things were in his screenplay. Werner Herzog uh, just added it all. I don't know if it was just correct. him and Cage or just him, but wow. that's all stuff that was not in the screenplay. And Werner's like, okay, I got ideas, Like, let's just do this. It's so weird to have the screenwriter be linked to this tremendous scene where after he gets shot Cage says shoot him again his soul's still dancing like it's this brilliant line in this just amazing scene and it's like they're killing the screenwriter and also kind of killing the screenwriter by not using his words like just coming up like yeah. or, like your script is good but like I'm gonna do something completely different because it's way better than what you wrote yeah it's the most literal death of the author I've ever seen and it's, <laughs> it's wonderful it's surprising that the silver spoon monologue was a Herzog edition because it, it feels really forced and cliched along with the scene where Cage and the stepmother are both messed up and have that conversation on the couch where they basically say, oh yeah, we're the same people. We're like mirrors of each other. And it's, it's really beating you over the head. Felt like the Silver Spoon monologue, even, even with all his weird Jimmy Stewart voice that's going on in it, I felt like that was one of the low points of the movie as well. I guess it just sets up the, the hilarious, perfect fairy tale ending that gets reversed at the end. Like, that's the only reason I can see it was added, because I, I, I think it's one of the weaker parts right of the out, film. Right out there, I thought that pirates came up the Mississippi and that they buried treasure right there by that tree next to the house. So I, I, I took the metal detector that my mom gave me and I went out there with it and it started beeping. It was like, beep, beep. Beep, 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 
And I started digging, and I, I, I dug, and I dug, and I dug, and I found a, a sterling silver spoon. And I was so happy. I started screaming and jumping and laughing. I went, hey, man, this is treasure. This is pirate treasure. And I came back in here with it. And I hid it somewhere, this sterling silver spoon. I still can't find it. It could be anywhere. I, I, I know it's here. I feel like it's also kind of caged the chameleon sort of... Uh, maybe I'm just making excuses because I like the movie and just trying to justify it, because it does sort of feel like completely out of place and does sort of feel like a fairy tale. But maybe it's just him as a chameleon knowing what to say to who in every situation. Like, we were talking about how he's a different person around Big Fate. You know, he's a different person in this situation, that situation. Like, here he knows that he needs to kind of inspire Eva Mendes, that she's sort of at her low point. And so to make her sort of maybe the princess of her fairy tale or give her sort of this glimmer of hope... Maybe that's just, like, what needs to happen. I'm, I'm sure that you could do it in a way that doesn't feel as forced or weird or awkward, but also it kind of works, that this is just exactly what she needs to hear at the right time. You know what? You've sold me on it just from that. It <laughs> makes sense, because, I mean, even, like, the silver spoon, like, what a silver spoon represents, like, it, it's a very obvious... It's not even a symbol. It's like, we all know what a silver spoon is. Privilege, it could have been yeah. anything else, yeah. And he brings this prostitute who, like, if she is the cliché noir prostitute has probably had a very fucked up childhood. And to her, even this fucked up family is a family to her that she might not have. So yeah, he's slipping into that role and saying the things she wants to hear. That actually makes a lot of sense to me now. <laughs> I also love how it sort of makes me think of Cage as a child too. Like he talks about like, I used to come here into the shed as a boy and it was my castle picking up on the princess metaphors and everything like that. He talks of pirates coming into New Orleans and I feel like we've had pirate talk before in cage club or pirate stories can't quite place it when but it feels uh, almost something like it's not pirates but it feels like something almost out of a national treasure like it's like a history like a family legacy right yeah yeah so it's cool how he's able to sort of become childlike again at this point for eva mendez to sort of give her hope or just just to emotionally just give her some sort of protection at this point like and it just made me think of him (laughs) digging around with a metal detector as a little kid too how funny (laughs) that must have been and that could have that could have very easily been a cage edition as well because we know cage loves himself some new orleans it was a pirate haven in the 1800s so that could be a little cage thing that he threw in there so between his speech to ava mendez about this silver spoon about the pirates and then the way that he handles his like reintegration or his integration into big fate's gang and telling him that you know he never cared about the murders like he was never really after big fate he's just doing it because he had to are these true stories or is he just like we were kind of just talking about is he just saying what needs to be said did he i mean not that it necessarily matters in the ava mendez case did he actually experience this or was he just lying to her to tell her what she wanted to hear and for big fate did he actually want to get him or was he just going through the motions and didn't care as long as he sort of got high along the way Mm, i think he did want to crack the case even if it was just for more power in the end, which he gets because he becomes bad, whatever, because after lieutenant, he gets promoted in the end. Bad captain. Bad captain, sure. But he does, he sets Big Fate up. It's a big anticlimax. It all happens off screen, but he does set him up to take the fall for the murders. Yeah, I didn't realize it at the time, but this is the start of 
a semi-long con, maybe a short con, but he's going to con Big Fate to smoke out of his crack pipe. <laughs> like, that's the I, whole thing, to set him up. And I guess, but I don't know, like, at what, po- at what point does he have that? Like, is that his plan from the beginning? That's what I think. I think that's his plan from the beginning. I think he realizes at some point, and I think, it, again, it goes back to just him being, like, a, like, a good cop or just thinking like a cop or something like he's going to use his sort of drug addiction to get closer than anyone else can ever get to the bad guys you know i mean he even gets to a point where exhibit basically confesses to murdering all those guys right in front of him like they're just sitting there smoking crystal meth and exhibits like you know it's a good thing i got you man because i don't want to have to go around like murdering every like african guy who like comes over here and his whole family and and, it's just so gets him to open up and trust them so well and doing the drugs is like his big in that no one else has so i feel like he wants to genuinely help big fate it's kind of like he's opportunistic. This is when he sort of stripped of his gun, kind of ceremoniously or whatever, removed of his badge. And I feel like he's going to whatever way can get him to can help him the most. That, at least at this moment, is joining Big Fate's gang and offering protection and then taking a cut of the profits, taking a cut of the drugs, whatever. And then when the mafia goons show up and there's this shootout and they kill the guy and they shoot his soul who's still dancing... Maybe because that was, like, now people are going to start asking questions. That's when he decides to flip on Big Fate. Like, things were going smooth, like we were under the radar, but now that there's murder involved, now that there's going to be people looking at these people, now I'd better sort of flip back and join the cops again. I don't know if it's, like, a con. I don't know if it's, like, a long con or a short con or just cage, like, sort of self-preservation. I think it's just opportunistic. I think it's whatever's going to get him to his perceived goal at that moment. I think, yeah, I think it's a little that. I think it's a little bit of self-preservation. He does owe his bookie a lot of money. So one way to get that money would be to work for this criminal and be his informant. Perhaps that is part of the plan. Part of the plan is like, okay, uh, I'm going to work for this guy and get the money I need to pay off my bookie. Another part of the plan is, well, if I need to, I can use this i'll be close to him so i can set him up I, after i get my money that i need maybe i can somehow fix it so he gets caught for this crime i don't know I, i'm gonna kind of go with self-preservation here because like you know and like he just is able to adapt when the situation calls for it you know the mob comes in exhibit and his crew take care of him and then it's like okay well that problem's taken care of now let's wrap up this other problem with the crime and everything that makes sense because he shakes big fade down for the, some of the uncut coke I have a feeling that that was going to somehow be turned into money to pay off the bookie, and whatever was left that could go in his lucky crack pipe was just kind of gravy, is kind of the feeling I got from that scene. What I also like about that scene is that one of Big Fate's guys, I don't remember who it was, might have been G, it was just like, you know, before you sell that, make sure you cut it. At the same time, Cage and Big Fate are kind of just doing the drugs straight, you know what I mean? Like... They're so, I guess, into it, or they're just so immune to the effects of these drugs that they're able to do, like, uncut, pure cocaine, but it's too dangerous for street level. Cage is great here when he f- goes off the rails and tells the story about the, uh, the college football player that he shook down turning into an elk in front of him as he was watching oh the God. game. That's, that scene's fantastic. Yeah, and how great was that scene when he catches, like, the football player takes that opportunity to create this point-shaving scheme and get him to try and throw the game so he could win his money back. It's crazy how, like, opportunistic he is. And, and yeah, and it's just even crazier when he's getting high with this gang and, like, doing this crack talk, as they say. Hey, did I ever tell you a story about nigga elk? 
Nigga Elk, yeah, I was watching TV, the game, right? Ronaldo Hayes, he got tossed the ball and he was running with it. He was running, running, running. <laughs> he jumped over three linebackers in midair. He sprouted antlers like a gazelle. <laughs> like an elk. <laughs> he landed again, he ran, ran, ran. He scored a touchdown. <laughs> That's the crack talking. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm not worried about you, so don't be concerned about me. Because <laughs> I'm not concerned if you're not concerned, so don't worry, because I'm not really concerned. <laughs> I'm worried, because if you drop dead, I'm the motherfucker they come looking for. And then I got to end up having a nigga from Africa trying to move in on my shit. And I don't want to shoot no more purple-ass niggas from Africa. You easy, understand? Easy, 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 because I'm not easy eat. <laughs> like, the whole, like, the, I feel like there's a point in this movie that most of the movie you, like, can't look away. Like, it's just so compelling. But here, like, the last, like, half hour, everybody is just firing on all cylinders. It's like, as soon as Cage gets involved with Big Fate, we know that this is kind of the beginning of the end in a lot of ways. Everything about this is just infinitely compelling. And, you know, the way that Cage is acting and what he's saying and just sort of how the plot, like, begins to go zero to 60. Like, this is kind of when, like, the investigation, which sort of didn't matter for most of the movie kind of comes back in a play that Cage is involved in here, the ball is rolling and, like, nothing's going to stop until it's all over and sort of all the cards have been turned over or all the pins have been knocked down. It's kind of a big anticlimax because, like I said, everything happens kind of off-screen. He tells his partner, uh, who's not Val Kilmer, who's, a, who's definitely a that guy, who I feel bad that I can't remember his name, he tells him, like, you should go check at the murder house. There might have been something left under the bed, and, and we know that that's where he's putting the lucky crack pipe that now has Exhibit's DNA on it. By the way, Exhibit is, uh, is who plays Big Fate. I feel like we're, uh, we're jumping back and forth and just yeah. confusing people. But then that, that guy, who's the, the, the partner, is like, did you have another one of your visions? And it's like, what? Where, where did this come from? And then you remember, oh, we're jumping from like a shitty Law & Order episode to a shitty episode of The Mentalist, because that's what we're doing. We're kind of deconstructing all of these terrible procedurals Ooh. under the guise of this, through the, like I said, through the lens of Herzog. I don't know if that's like a Mentalist dig, or I feel like that's more like Cage's planted evidence before, and like, you know, <laughs> they've asked him like, how do you know about this crack bite? He's just like, oh, you know, I had it in a vision. Like, it's kind of like a shorthand that, like, you don't worry about it, I took care but like we just got the evidence we need go check it out like i don't know if that's i mean it could be a mentalist dig it could be just sort of taking down one procedure at a time i wasn't entirely serious there but like it does come out of nowhere that <laughs> it idea does come, it, is, it is a weird line and it, and it is sort of like a it's a very specific way to sort of downplay yeah. his behavior and if it was kilmer saying that i would agree with you but this cop is more of like a straight-laced guy the first time he uh is with the two old ladies that guy is very courteous and apologizing for cage's antics even though they're really not much of antics at that point especially compared to what comes later it's weird that he goes to him with that instead of Kilmer, though. I feel like this kid is more by the book. Like, he's still younger. He seems more like a rookie. And if he went to Val Kilmer, Kilmer might blow him off or gloat more about it or grandstand as some kind of thing. But I, I feel like Cage almost feels like he, I feel like he's got like this Jedi mind trick here over this little kid where he's like, you will go to the house and look behind the couch. You will find what you seek kind of yeah. thing going on. Like, he has influence over this young cop so he's going to exploit him too yeah i don't think you necessarily need like a naive or a young cop or like a by the book cop i think you just need one that you can control 
mm. that if he was really by the book, he would know this is an evidence I can use, like this is planted. So you can't have like a by the book cop, but you can also have a loose cannon like Val Kilmer, who at the end when they go to arrest Big Fate, <laughs> all right, make him go for his gun, let's shoot him and then rob him. It's just like, whoa, like that, that's the other extreme. Like we can't have that either. Like you kind of need something down the middle. And I think you're right. Like this kid is just someone that Cage can sort of rely on that he is for the most part a good cop, but will also sort of take a shortcut if that means closing a case. That makes sense. That makes sense. By the way, I felt bad I couldn't remember his name. Uh, that's Sean Hattesey. You might remember him as the jock in the faculty. Mm, uh, also, his yes. his credits include a shitload of procedurals, such as CSI, <laughs> Numbers, Law and Order Criminal Intent, CSI Miami, Hawaii Five-O, Criminal Minds, Law and Order Special Victims Unit. I feel like every actor, except for really Cage, has done procedurals at one point or another, whether it's just an episode or they have like a little run or they started one. Because there are just so many procedurals making so many episodes. I wonder if there's just a lot of people from those worlds in this world and saying, like, all right, like, play like you normally do, but just be warned, crazy shit is going to go on around you. Yeah, I feel it's like a rite of passage if you're an actor to have <laughs> dabbled in the procedural, to have played, like, a rapist on, on a criminal intent or SVU or something like that. When the exhibit was on screen, I definitely thought of, like, Ice-T being on his cop show, and, ah, oh, rappers. Rappers, <laughs> rappers working, rappers acting. <laughs> but, yeah, like, as the movie is sort of coming to a close, we sort of alluded to this point earlier, I think Chris made the point, everything kind of comes up Millhouse for Cage, he makes this bet on Louisiana, and he shakes down this Louisiana, like, basically, I think, a running back or a tight end or something, some offensive skill player, and he's just like, you know, I want your team to win, but only by a couple points. It looks like they're, like, because Louisiana's, like, blowing out their opponent, and that kid took himself out of the game, and so everything's sort of falling apart, but then this is when everything sort of starts going Cage's way, and, like, Louisiana winds up winning, and, like, everything happens in the span of, like, two minutes. Like, he wins the Louisiana bet, Brad Durv is really happy because all the speeding tickets cleared up, Bruce Ball went and took care of the speeding tickets, the crack pipe was found at the murder scene, Ava Mendez is kind of happy. It's got to be making fun of happy endings in movies, because, like, it's crazy how quickly everything falls into place, everything comes up roses for Cage. It's a scene that I find really funny, and a scene that I feel like a lot of people would just think was deus machinas in a row, which it is, but that's the joke. The all right, all right, or whatever guy comes in, he's like, we're cool, he leaves Brad Dorf, immediately <laughs> yeah. comes in, throws $50,000 on his desk in the middle of the cop room. As soon as he exits, the chief comes in from the side, like from the side of the camera, with the yep. biggest shit, shit-eating grin on his face <laughs> and a crack pipe. Cut to, he's a detective, everyone's clean, and they're married, and Ava Mendez is having his kid. It's just the funniest sequence of like, well, time to tie this all up and send the audience home happy. And what I also like about this scene is that it makes fun of way too personal business, like sort of shady underhand stuff. Like, they're basically screaming in the, in the precinct, like, hey, your gambling bet like came through, like, here's all the money you won in this illegal racket, good job with that bet in Louisiana, like, even though you frisked down that kid, good job here. How many times do you see a scene where you're like, how are people around them not hearing this manipulative, like, shady underhand dealings that they're doing? Here, like, doesn't matter. Like, either everybody's crooked or it's the world that they live in where it just, this is okay. The first time I saw this, I mean, I was like, what the hell is going on in this scene? I, I wasn't <laughs> sure if it was a dream sequence, like, if this was oh, yeah. a fantasy of some type, but it's absolutely not. Like, it's a real scene. It's happening in reality. It's like the super conclusion. It's like the ultimate wrap-up, wrap everything up in one scene in a complete package, which feels like 
like a super no-no. I don't feel like you should do that necessarily in a film. But what's strange is how well it kind of worked here. Everything, uh, in a way, was already taken care of. Cage just needed to be informed about it. You know what I'm saying in a weird way? Like, we know he planted the crack pipe so the case was going to be solved. We know he made a bet. We don't know if he won the game, but we know he tried to fix a game and made a bet on it and, like, has been trying to tie up all these loose ends. And so, like, in some weird way, it's, like, very natural and yet also very unnatural. And even if he lost the bet, he still had made enough money earlier to pay off his debt and pay for his upcoming bet. So, like, even if he lost the bet, like, it, it wouldn't have mattered. Like, his life, he's getting all of his life back in order and it's just it's just funny how everything falls in a place from like exactly perfectly the way that he wants. What's even better and smarter and sort of more brilliant is that we think we have this happy ending, and then the movie twists again, and Cage is alone, or like he's shaking down kids, and then he goes alone in a hotel room and he's doing lines. We were so close to the happy ending, and like every other director, every other movie would end there. That it's like this sort of false ending. And now we sort of get the ending that this character and this movie and we deserve, where Cage is once again down on his luck and a broken man, and as much as he wants to be clean, he just can't live that life. Yeah, I think that whole string of Dave Sex Machina's is kind of Herzog saying, you've come along this far in the ride and you still give a shit about the plot? Okay, (laughs) here you go, idiot. He really comes back to that with Cage relapsing after the happy ending, like, oh, you still care? Like you're, you're you're an idiot for caring. Like it's not going to change. Tigers don't change their stripes. This is how it's always going to be, no matter how many happy endings we throw at you. It's like the whole like romantic comedy thing. These two people get together under these ridiculous circumstances. They kiss. Cut to credits. You don't get that graduate scene where like they go. They it's like now what? Like oh shit. He's kind of giving you that. Like what happens right. after that happy ending? It's like it's all going to go to shit always every time. Other directors definitely would have cut when they are toasting his new promotion and, you know, Eva Mendez is pregnant and everybody's seemingly on the wagon and not drinking and that's where you cut the credits, but not Herzog. And it's great because it's true to the character, you know, and that's what the story is about. It's not about the case, it's about the character. But what I like about this ending, the the movie or Herzog or whoever is basically saying, you know, Life sucks, it's going to beat you down, you know, we're all broken, we're all going to give in to our vices, but also at the same time, if you're a good person and you actively try to help the world, the world might try to help you back. That as much as this movie is about the American dream and sort of making your own destiny, if part of your journey is risking your life and getting this prisoner out of a cell, your own prisoner in your own cell, in your own metaphor in your life, and you save his life, that guy, as sort of far-fetched as, a, as it might be, might just come around in your darkest hour, sort of rescue you, bring you to an aquarium, and just sort of make you like realize how crazy life is. As brutal as life can be, sometimes, if you're good, good things can happen. But there's also the possibility that this guy who's been clean, the guy he saved at the beginning, who he meets, who's been clean, as he says, for months or whatever, there's a real possibility that Cage just gets him high, and then they go break into an aquarium. Also true. We don't know. <laughs> yeah. And the last line of the movie is, you know, wrapping back to the beginning, which it doesn't really wrap into at all, because it's just a throwaway line, is the whole, do fish have dreams, which comes from, uh, I think, a poem that one of the, the children murdered had written. Then the last shot is just a single shot on Cage very slowly breaking into a smile and then laughter. I think that's the the big punchline of the movie is that the whole thing has kind of been a big farce. 
And that's, in a lot of ways, the brilliance of this movie. God, I love this movie so much. Yeah. Very, very minor things in terms of the making of this movie, and then we can go back to anything we missed. When Cage is doing cocaine in this movie, he's actually snorting baby powder. So he is actually doing something, which is, I mean, I'm sure it's harmless, but it's still him committed to his craft. He was not drinking, like, it's not like he was getting drunk. Like, for leaving Las Vegas, he got drunk on set and sort of got in the mindset of playing a drunk. Here he didn't. Maybe he was just channeling his inner leaving Las Vegas self. The other thing in terms of making of this movie is that that scene that we just talked about from the beginning of the movie, where he rescues that guy in that cell, they apparently used decaf coffee to color the water to make it look like river water, because they were originally going to use paint but it proved to be toxic. And then they used regular coffee, but the poor guy who was in the cell was absorbing the caffeine through his skin, and like I guess it was sort of really messing him up. But they had to use decaf coffee with 2,400 cans of decaf coffee to color this water, which is insane. Like, use computers, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's not rebuilding Ground Zero in L.A. for World Trade Center, but that's commitment to the scene. Yeah, and the scene is lit very it's not poorly lit it's lit like a prison that has no power and yeah. it's being flooded i don't even know if i could tell what color the water was yeah. before right now <laughs> yeah good call i mean it's just that extra added step you don't even notice that pays off i guess i, I love that story about the coffee though i watched some of the behind <laughs> the scenes and and herzog is telling someone that story about how the guy was like getting the jitters and like absorb he was absorbing coffee through the skin and i just thought that was like wow that's like what a weird sort of <laughs> issue to have, like only in movies, right? Oh, I'm sorry. There's something I forgot that I, I need to bring up. When they arrest Big Fate and Val Kilmer's like, let's just make it look like he pulled a gun on us, shoot him and take all the drugs. And then Nick Cage is like, no. And Val Kilmer's like, okay. Like, what, what the oh, hell? Oh, 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 oh. But Cage says next time, right? He's like, not this time, next time. I almost got the feeling like he does feel a little bad for screwing over Big Fate. You know, he's like, sorry, man, I I did kind of like hanging out with you, but I'm still a cop. (laughs) No, I'm not going to kill you, but you're going away for the rest of your life. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like in the universe where like this is the bad movie, the the cliched original script. Right. That's Mm -hmm. that's some twist that we we maybe could have seen coming. And there's 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 a shootout and he shoots the real bad cop or something. It's just it seemed really out of place, but also really in line with everything wraps up really neatly. But it just comes out of nowhere because Kilmer, I think, is completely absent from the movie after the not-raid scene that happens. Right. That also might be Cage telling Kilmer what he needs to hear, like he's talking to that sort of by-the-book cop. It's just him saying, like, oh, yeah, like, next time, guy, like, buddy, like, next time, well, don't worry about it, like, you'll get yours. <laughs> and then maybe he says that at every time, like, you know, not, and like, I can sort of see a, a situation where Val Kilmer's like, man, last time you said next time, like, we can't do it, like, if we can't rob this guy, like, who are we going to rob? Maybe if he is trying to go straight, like, just keep pushing it to the next bust, to the next one, you know, eventually Val Kilmer might snap, but who knows? Yeah, I almost got the sense that Val Kilmer's character would be bad at being a bad lieutenant. Like, he wouldn't know exactly, like, when to be bad and when not to. And this is sort of like him trying to act like Cage, like he might think his partner would act. Oh, wouldn't you want to kill the bad guy and steal all of his money? And in a way, it's like trying to be like you or something, or like trying to relate to you, maybe. Something like that. It's sort of how I took it. He's like the the second-rate version of, uh, of Nick Cage's character in this movie. Mike, anything in your notes that we didn't cover? I know we mentioned Michael Shannon's in this, but I'm not sure if we mentioned he's a returning actor. He was in World Trade Center. 
Sure was. Also a Herzog standard. Yeah, my son, my son, what have you done? I watched that earlier this year and highly recommend it. Just also just like a creepy guy. Like, I feel like he's kind of the most normal, sort of humble, <laughs> down-to-earth cop this entire movie. And we talked a lot about it in the World Trade Center. Just a menacing, creepy, terrifying character actor. Not really given much to do, but maybe sort of by choice? I don't know. That's definitely saying a lot if Michael Shannon is the least sort of scary <laughs> person in your movie. <laughs> so Chris, thank you for joining us. I hope we did one of your favorite movies justice. Is this your favorite is it safe to say this is your favorite cage movie, or are there any other cage movies in your top twenty? Oh, by far. <laughs> this is this is easily my favorite cage movie. I think it's Herzog's best narrative film by a lot. Yeah, no, I love this movie. I, I do feel like I need to dive a little bit deeper into like nineties Nick Cage. I feel like I've missed out on that a lot, and this is this whole following you guys doing the Cage Club has kind of brought that to light that I've missed a lot. I've never I've never seen Con Air. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> there's some there's there's some good cage out there. It, there's stuff under the radar. So I mean, if you if you want some recommendations, you know, two people that you can definitely ask for like the best of cage. Definitely. So thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. For all things cage, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews, find past podcasts, follow us on Twitter, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. All things cage at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski, and I'm Mike Manzi. And that's Chris Mattiello, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club. Cage Club.